On July 5, 2007, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office in Florida was conducting a buy bust at a Days Inn hotel. Two undercover officers and a confidential informant were posing as drug buyers. The CI placed a call to the suspect and engaged him in conversation about purchasing $100 worth of crack cocaine. Once the suspect arrived, he entered the hotel and met with the CI and two undercover cops. The suspect pulled out several pieces of crack cocaine and placed them on a nearby entertainment center. The suspect then told the detective if he wanted more, it would cost an extra $100. The detective paid the suspect a total of $200. The suspect took the money and stated that he had to go to his vehicle to get the rest. Then the takedown signal was given. Undercover cops in an adjoining room took him into custody. He was given several loud commands to take his hands out of his pockets and get to the ground. The suspect ignored all comments given to him. For officer safety and to apprehend the suspect, one of the cops deployed her taser. Suspect was taken into custody. Now, these are the facts alleged by the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. The suspect in this case was Curtis. You'll remember him as the guy who allegedly gave Derek's brother Eric the gun that was later tied to Jessica Green's homicide. And according to the snitch, Curtis shot Jessica Green when he went in there with Derek's brother Eric to rob the place of drugs. Curtis disputes some of the facts alleged by the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office in this case. This case is the one that got him a 30-year sentence. I want you to bear with me because I think there's a benefit to exploring this for the purposes of deciding whether you think he is more or less likely to have been involved along with one or both of the brothers, Derek and Eric, in Jessica Green's homicide. So, in this case, the drug case, the jury sees video of this buy-bust transaction. And as you might imagine, that video is essentially the star witness. Law enforcement officers will testify, saying that the female confidential informant placed a call to Curtis and ordered a yard, or $100 worth of crack. They say the defendant, Curtis, arrived with a female in the passenger seat of his vehicle that he was driving, but she did not enter the room. The officer testified that there was a short conversation between the informant and the suspect, and then an undercover detective entered the conversation, quote, at which time he sold the detective $100 worth of crack cocaine and an additional 100 was given for another quantity of cocaine. I didn't have the video, but I did have the transcript. So here's what that says. There's a knock on the door. Crystal, the confidential informant, opens the door, then goes to sit down on the bed. Curtis walks into the room and says, What's up, man? An undercover detective says, What do you got there? What do you think, babe? The undercover detective is directing that question to Crystal, the confidential informant. She says, Probably like a yard. I mean, is that cool with you? You got a yard? Curtis responds, Yeah, yeah, I got more than a yard. Then there's some crosstalk. What you got? What do you want? 
Crystal, our informant, says, Whatever it takes to get me freaky, he don't care. Then she laughs. Curtis points to the two rocks of crack that he had put on the entertainment center as soon as he walked in the door. That's a yard right there. One of the undercover cops says, Yard right there? Curtis then asks, Want another yard? Then a cell phone rings in the background. One of the cops asks Curtis, You got it with you out there? Curtis replies, Yeah. One of the cops says, Just get it. What's it, what's it look, does it look good? Let me see. There's some mumbled crosstalk that's inaudible, and then one of the cops says, Hey, you gonna get the other one? You gonna bring in the other yard? Curtis says, Yeah, and he exits the room. Cops immediately take him down. This motel room is one of the ones that opens directly into the parking lot, and Curtis's car is parked right in front of the door. At the end of the audio, he is being taken into custody. You can hear the cell phone ringing, and Crystal says she hung up on the last call, and it's a number they need to call back. Someone says, this guy keeps calling back. Go in there so they can't hear you. Then the cops quickly clear out the room. In later testimony, we learn that police had another buy bust right on the back of this one. And that call was from someone else that Crystal, the confidential informant, had reached out to by phone, asking to buy drugs in order to lure them, just like she did with Curtis, to that same hotel room. Next on the transcript, there's a couple of officers discussing how they, quote, tased his ass, and how there was confusion because the takedown team was supposed to come through the adjoining door in the motel room, but it was locked, so they had to grab Curtis as he exited the room. One of the cops says, tell them there's more in the car. But there wasn't. They found no other drugs in the vehicle. There had also been a second confidential informant hiding in the bathroom during that drug buy, and we later learn that it's a male related to the female CI, her husband or boyfriend. It appears that they worked together during these buy busts, and if you believe Curtis, he had encountered them both before. That would become a bone of contention. On cross-examination, the detective testified that when Crystal, the confidential informant, had called Curtis, he couldn't hear his side of the conversation, and he couldn't recall what was said on Crystal's end either. In fact, two different cops would testify that they could not recall what was said on Crystal's end. They testified that there were no guidelines in place for what could be said on a call, but they also stipulated that had anything inappropriate been said during the call, they would have put a stop to it and ended the drug buy. There was no questioning, however, about what constituted inappropriate or whether it would have been okay for a CI to offer sex as enticement. And that's exactly what Curtis alleged happened. Whatever it takes to get me freaky. That's what Crystal had said on the video. Curtis arrived at the motel expecting to only meet her. Because according to him, they'd had this exact interaction in the past, multiple times. She would call and ask him to bring some drugs. He would come over and they would both get high and have sex. But this time he arrives and there's all these other people in the room. He says, what's up? And he sets two rocks on the entertainment center. According to him, at this point, he's not sure if he's going to get robbed or what. This whole situation is more than he had bargained for. He says he was just there to get high and have sex. Then one of the guys hands him a hundred dollars. 
he takes it. He never asks for any amount of cash on the video, and no drugs are found in his vehicle, which means that he lied to the undercover cops when he said he had more in the car. Curtis contends that he just wanted to leave, so he lied to get out of the room. When Curtis takes the stand in his defense, he tells the jury that he knew Crystal previously. They had met on four occasions, and they would get high together and have sex. He also said that one of those times there was a male present, and it happened to be the male that had been hiding in the bathroom during his buy bust. Curtis told the jury that on the night of the drug bust, Crystal called him and said to bring some drugs so they could get high and have sex. Curtis had his cousin take him there. He said they stopped at McDonald's on the way, and she got something to eat, so he drove the rest of the way to the motel so she could eat in the car while he was with Crystal. Curtis said when he arrived at the room, it was Crystal who answered the door, and then she went and laid on the bed, but she didn't say anything. It was one of the guys who started talking. He didn't feel comfortable because he didn't know the two men. He wasn't sure if they were going to beat his ass or rob him or both. He said one of the guys asked him if he had some drugs, and he was like, yeah, I got this, and he pointed to the two rocks that he had put down on the entertainment center. But if you want more, I can get more. Then the man handed him the money. Curtis maintained that he didn't tell the man he was going to sell him some drugs. He said he could get him some drugs. When his lawyer asked why he took the money, Curtis said, he handed me money and I was like, whoa, something ain't right. I need to get out of here. So he left. He knew he didn't have any more drugs in the car. He was planning on getting the hell out of there with the money. After a single-day trial, where both sides presented their cases, the jury is sent back to deliberate. They return in 18 minutes with a guilty verdict. They would have no way of knowing that their single day of work and 18-minute deliberation would result in a man being given a 30-year sentence. Nor would they know all of the calculations that went into the judge's determination of that sentence. But at least one prospective juror who had been dismissed during Voidir had expressed concerns about mandatory minimums in drug offenses. The judge himself agreed to dismiss that juror because he said he thought she would get into the deliberation room and make the whole discussion of sentencing a thing with the other jurors, many of whom had also described issues around unfair drug sentencing during Voidir. Legally, jurors are not supposed to consider sentencing in cases where they won't be asked to weigh in on sentencing. But from a practical standpoint, I think most people think if they are required to weigh in on someone's guilt or innocence, they would like to know that in the grand scheme of things, people who commit the worst crimes are going to get the worst sentences. I know that I wouldn't want to send someone to jail for 30 years for possessing or even trying to sell two rocks of crack. I don't feel that's a just sentence. But even as I share my opinion with you on that, I think by the end of this episode, you may understand why this is not a cut-and-dry issue. Or maybe for some of you it is. That's why I thought this discussion would be of value. I am committed to illustrating where I think things get murky and perhaps not equitable on this podcast. 
while also admitting that sometimes these inequities end with what should happen happening. That doesn't always make it right, though. So now let's dive a little bit deeper. Let me tell you Crystal's story, our confidential informant. In October of 2006, two undercover cops posing as buyers approached Crystal, asking if she had any pills. She said she didn't have any drugs to sell and didn't even have the cash to get her own Soma prescription filled. Soma is a class 4 controlled substance. The undercover cops made a deal with her to go buy some of her Soma after giving her the cash to get her prescription filled. Crystal was given $100 and she left in her vehicle, with the undercover cops following behind. They parked across the street and watched her go in, and then she came out with the filled prescription, then drove over and completed the transaction, giving them 65 of her Soma pills. The cops left. A month later, Two cops posing as buyers approached her again to purchase hydrocodone pills. She again said that she had none to sell, but she agreed to get them. She made a few calls, then drove with the two undercover cops to a Walgreens to meet with an unknown person who was going to deliver the pills. Crystal took the money and met with the source, who arrived at the Walgreens shortly after they did. She gave the unknown source the money and came back and handed the cops 40 hydrocodone pills. Then the cops left. Two months after that, in January of 2007, Crystal arrived at a Costco pharmacy in the area and was taken into custody. From there, she was transported to the station for an interview. The arrest and booking report for that 2007 arrest lists two charges. First, trafficking in illegal drugs, 28-plus grams of hydrocodone, and second, Possession with the intent to sell a controlled substance within 1,000 feet of a convenience store. At this time, Crystal is given a chance to work off her charges. She was used as a confidential informant in multiple transactions over a period of time. And after working off those charges, or a portion of those charges, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office started paying her per transaction. In fact, she was paid that night for luring Curtis to the hotel during that incident, and repeated this again multiple times on that same date, at that same hotel, with other individuals. In fact, the video of the incident shows her getting another call while police are completing their arrest of Curtis. One of the cops tells her to go into the bathroom and take the call, which she does. The problems with Curtis's transaction, according to him, is that he says he knew Crystal previously, And when Crystal called him asking for drugs, she didn't call about buying them from him. Curtis admits that he was in possession of drugs. He says she called and asked him to bring some drugs over and they'd have sex and do the drugs together. In court, it was revealed that no officer had heard the conversation that she had with Curtis to entice him to the motel, so they were unable to testify to what was said between the two. Now, you might tend to disbelieve his story, and I might as well, if it weren't for another individual who made the same claims after he was arrested in the exact same way, with Crystal enticing him there with the offer of sex. In his case, the state was compelled to reveal the name of the CI, which is how we know her name was Crystal. 
She had, in fact, been working with the cops for months. Curtis said that he had had sex with Crystal the day before his arrest and had known her in the months previous. Interestingly, Crystal was arrested in January of 2007, six months prior to her use as a confidential informant in Curtis's case. When Curtis was asked at trial how long he had known Crystal, he said four to six months. So that timeline does fit with what Curtis is saying. The other interesting thing that I found was that the day after Curtis was arrested in his drug sting, after those multiple by-bust operations that she did on that same day, Crystal entered a plea of guilty to one count of possession of cocaine, a third-degree felony. She was not, however, found guilty. Adjudication of guilt was withheld for good cause. It was filed under the same case number as her possession and trafficking in controlled substances within 1,000 feet of a convenience store, the case that I told you about. But the weird part is that there is no mention in that report of cocaine being seized at the time of that arrest. Just those other two charges, the one for the possession of a controlled substance, hydrocodone, and the trafficking charge, which are a first and a second degree felony. That cocaine charge that she was ultimately charged with was only a third-degree felony. I wondered if they entered her guilty plea for a substance that she didn't even have in exchange for her participation in the drug sting operation. It's either that, or they failed to mention in the report that she also had coke on her when they found the hydrocodone. Whatever you think about Curtis's guilt or innocence, I think we can all agree that if a confidential informant used sex as an enticement to get men to that motel room in order to procure a drug charge against them, that does feel a little entrapment-y. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you feel differently. And I understand why, because my feelings are squishy when it comes to Curtis's case. He's gone through a string of appeals. And one of those was an ineffective assistance of counsel allegation that I felt had some weight. All along from the beginning, Curtis insisted that he had been entrapped. His public defender never requested a jury instruction on entrapment, which he was entitled to as far as the law. Essentially, the theory of the defense was going to be that yes, Curtis was guilty of possession, but not sale, and that's how his lawyer was going to try the case. But on the day of trial, when they arrived, she learned that there was not a lesser-included charge that the judge could legally impose on a charge of sale. And his lawyer only learned this when she asked for a jury instruction on possession. Jury instructions are basically points decided upon by all parties, and the judge reads them to the jury. This helps the jury to understand the legal framework and what burdens need to be met to find defendants guilty or innocent on specific charges. So the public defender had planned her defense around him being guilty of possession but not sale, yet was not going to have the jury instruction to bolster that. And she went ahead with that defense anyway, which was a pretty big risk to take, knowing that the judge could not even sentence Curtis on just the sale. Her strategy was then to just present the case and hope the jury would go for straight innocence if they believed he wasn't there to sell. 
When Curtis was asked during his appeal proceeding why he took the money when it was handed to him if he didn't come to sell the drugs and he was only there to get high and have sex, he said, I was a drug addict. That's what drug addicts do. And his history showed that. He did do drugs. He just didn't have a prior record of selling drugs. But you know who did? Crystal, the confidential informant. She had a way longer history than Curtis. And after Curtis went to jail on this drug charge and got 30 years because he also had a habitual offender status tacked on, Crystal continued to offend. She's got a long rap sheet, all drug-related, sales and possession, to this day, in fact. In the end, it's the habitual offender status that got both Curtis and Eric very long sentences, and why they remain in jail today. In the transcript of his sentencing, we hear from family that both of Curtis's parents were drug users. His father was incarcerated, and Curtis was a drug user diagnosed with depression and bipolar. It was awful to read about the family members pleading for his life, all saying that he was not a bad person, not a violent person, yet a fingerprint analyst was brought in to testify that he had matched Curtis's prints to two other cases, one of aggravated battery and one of resisting without violence, which is a felony. He was convicted in both cases from 2003. During her summation, before his sentencing, the state attorney said, quote, Each of the witnesses presented by the defense have indicated that Curtis is not a violent person, not an aggressive person, but every single thing in his pre-sentencing investigation suggests otherwise. Aggravated battery on a pregnant victim, domestic violence, violation of injunctions for protection, simple batteries, aggravated assault, resisting an officer with violence, every single thing documented is violence. Thirteen times, he's been placed on probation or given some type of jail sentence. He's been given multiple opportunities to become a productive citizen. I don't think that has sent a message to Mr. Thomas. The state also said that Curtis had alleged he was addicted to drugs at the time, but nothing in their pre-sentencing report showed any charges related to drug use. There were no drug-related charges in his criminal history at all. Then the state asked for a sentence of 30 years in Florida State Prison. Curtis's lawyer argued that she did have documentation of his mental health issues and previous drug abuse problems, and she begged the court on her client's behalf not to impose the extra 15 years for the habitual offender status. She argued that 15 years would, quote, perhaps give him an opportunity to sober up and come out and perhaps become a productive member of society at an older and more mature age. The judge called Curtis up to the front of the room, and he said it was hard for him to listen to his family members because it was obvious that they loved him and they would do anything they could to help him. But, quote, after hearing their testimony, it appears that they love you so much, they're almost blind to the reality of what your life has become. You have a serious record of violence. Then the judge rattled off a litany of violent offenses. Short stints in jail, probation, followed by another violent offense, and probation. 
two violent felony convictions. And it's nestled in there, that piece that I had been looking for, related to Jessica's case, something that would show me that he had committed anything that looked like what could have occurred with her. In January 2005, Curtis was arrested for burglary with an assault. I'm embarrassed to say that that was when I learned the difference between burglary and robbery. Burglary is typically defined as the unlawful entry into almost any structure with the intent to commit any crime inside, not just theft. Curtis didn't steal anything, but what he did do was kick in the door and batter a victim inside, allegedly dragging his girlfriend around by the hair and demanding to see his child. On the domestic violence threat assessment, the victim answered the question, how many times has your partner been violent with you? with 11 or more times. In this instance, Curtis was eventually allowed to plead to battery as a lesser offense. There were two more batteries after that, and then his drug case that landed him in prison. But here's the thing. What was never mentioned in a single instance was him having a weapon, no gun, not one. Now remember, Derek alleges, according to his cellmate, that Curtis gave the gun he was arrested with to his brother Eric. But none of Curtis's offenses was committed with a weapon. He was never arrested on any weapons charges. Does that tell us that he didn't break into Jessica's house with Eric? Like Derek said? No, he absolutely could have. He certainly had a propensity for violence. And he had at least once kicked in a door, which is what happened at Jessica's crime scene. But now let's look at Derek and Eric's cases and see if we find a more compelling case for them having been the perpetrators in Jessica's homicide. First, we know that they were engaged in that bungled armed burglary just a few miles from Jessica Green's house 18 days after she was murdered. We know that guns were used in the commission of that crime because witnesses saw weapons and weapons were found on each of the escape routes that Eric and Derek took. We also know that one of those weapons traced back to the projectile found at Jessica Green's crime scene. So those two brothers had the murder weapon in their possession. We have nothing that links Curtis to that weapon. They also both admitted to being there, and they both said it was Eric that pried the door open with the crowbar. But only Derek associates himself with a gun. In fact, he told his soulmate the gun that he was arrested with was the one that was used in Jessica's homicide. He told law enforcement that his brother Eric gave him that gun during the robbery. Eric himself denied ever having a gun. There was no trial in Eric's case. He pled guilty. Interestingly, he was represented by the same public defender who handled Curtis's case. They also had the same sentencing judge. There were similar appeals citing ineffective assistance of counsel from Eric. One of those was the fact that his lawyer failed to challenge the factual basis for the plea of guilty to the charge of armed burglary. Here, the argument is that Eric did not admit to police that he had a gun. The appeal alleges that his lawyer knew, or should have known, that there was a factual dispute in the record regarding an essential element of him possessing a firearm at any time during the commission of a burglary. 
Remember, testing didn't reveal any prints or DNA on the weapons found to link them to either Derek or Eric. The purpose of the factual basis requirement is to ensure that the facts of the case fit the offense with which the defendant is charged. If Eric didn't admit to having a gun, how can he be charged with armed burglary? The appeal points to the fact that during his brother Derek's interrogation by police, his co-defendant, he indicated that at some time while exiting the residence that they were burglarizing, Eric gave him a black handgun. However, Eric denied any involvement with any gun. There were conflicting statements from eyewitnesses as to who became armed and when. During his interview with the detective, Eric admitted to using a crowbar to enter the residence. In one deposition, a witness stated that the person without the crowbar had the gun, and that would be Derek. In another deposition, another witness stated that the man without the crowbar had a silver gun. A third eyewitness said that the defendant without the crowbar was standing lookout, while the one with the crowbar got the door open, and it was he that had the silver gun. So these witness statements contradict each other. When the state attorney was asked by the court about the existence of DNA evidence, the state attorney said, No, ma'am, both firearms in this case were swabbed for DNA and sent over to FDLE for analysis. Neither gave presence of any DNA so there is none to my knowledge. That's a problem. Not for Derek and Eric, but it is a problem for Jessica Green's case, because that also means that there's no DNA on the weapon used to kill Jessica. Nothing linking any perpetrator to the gun used to kill her. At trial, the maximum possible sentence faced by Eric was life in prison, which may have been why he agreed to take a plea and no trial. But he, just like Curtis, also had the habitual offender status. Eric was sentenced to a term of 28 years. His appeal was also denied. There was one telling item in the exhibits included with the appeal documents in Eric's case, which was a letter described by the state attorney. Quote, One of the things the state disclosed on the morning of trial was a letter intercepted at the jail written by this defendant where he essentially was asking somebody in his family to contact people to basically establish an alibi for him and to contact the two eyewitnesses in this case to have them change their testimony. I'm sure that was taken into consideration by his lawyer when assessing whether or not she wanted to call some of the defense witnesses that Eric had asked her to call at the trial. The judge responded, quote, If the contents of that letter and I may be reading between the lines here, but if the contents of that letter made his lawyer feel that potential witnesses in the case had been tainted by having been subject to the letter, that would be a factor that both she and the defendant would have to look at in considering whether to go to trial or let him enter a plea. Unlike Curtis, both Derek and Eric had arrests involving weapons. Before he was incarcerated, Eric had a bunch of burglary and battery offenses as well as possession of drug offenses. In 1994, when he was 18 years old, there was an incident of aggravated battery and another instance of aggravated domestic assault. The next year, he's 19 years old. He and a buddy chased three victims into a field with a gun and shot at them two or three times. Eric drove the getaway car from the scene of that shooting. In that case, the state attorney declined to prosecute. 
That same year, in 1995, there were two separate drug arrests. Eric did two months and probation for one, and eight months for another. There was also a 1995 burglary charge. In 1996, Eric was arrested for carrying a concealed firearm and possession of less than 20 grams of cannabis. He pled guilty before trial and did eight months. There was also another battery charge in 1996, where he did four months in jail and a year probation. In 2002, when an officer attempted to pull Eric over in a van that he was driving, he attempted to elude police and began driving dangerously and erratically. At some point, he threw crack cocaine from the vehicle and then slowed the vehicle to attempt to escape on foot. It took two witnesses and two cops to detain and take him into custody. One of the cops was elbowed in the eye by Eric in the process, and a canine indicated that money in his pocket had the scent of drugs on it. In 2004, there was a disturbance where police were called after being told that Eric had made threats on another family member. They believed he had a gun on him, although no gun was found in his possession when police finally made contact. Jumped to that 2007 robbery with his brother, and then he was incarcerated. Now let's get back to Derek, who essentially sent us down this whole rabbit hole in the first place because of the tip that investigators had on Jessica Green's case that they received from his cellmate. Unlike Curtis and Eric, Derek did not have the habitual offender status, and without any link to him and the gun, as well as the conflicting witness statements, even with his admissions, well, the state attorney must have felt pretty lucky that his brother pled guilty and waived a trial, because Eric did not. He got a 28-month sentence, just over two years. He also let his lawyer fend off any questions from investigators on Jessica Green's case. Derek had multiple burglary and possession offenses, as well as multiple domestic violence injunctions. There were also a few gun-related offenses in addition to the armed robbery with his brother. In 2017, there was a complaint where a witness flagged down an officer saying that there was an individual armed inside a vehicle and he believed he was about to be shot. A traffic stop was conducted and Eric was found in a vehicle with three females. Derek told the officer he was trying to sell the individual a firearm when an argument ensued. When he saw the cop car, he got nervous and he stashed the gun in the purse of one of the females. And that's where the gun was found, in the purse of a 15-year-old relative. Then. In January of 2021, this year, Derek ran a red light, causing another vehicle to swerve and avoid a collision. A traffic stop was initiated. The vehicle slowed and a young male exited the passenger side and fled. Then the car stopped. The driver's door flew open and Derek exited. He tried to flee but eventually collapsed from exhaustion. A gun was found in the driver's side floorboard, hidden beneath a ball cap. A bag containing pot, crack cocaine, and powder cocaine was found. A check on the firearm revealed it to be stolen from Duval County three years prior. Derek tried to say that everything in the vehicle belonged to the passenger who had fled, but he wouldn't reveal the passenger's name. A records check revealed his prior armed burglary conviction, so this very well may be the case that earns Derek that habitual offender status. And that case is currently pending. So here's the point in the season where I'm going to wrap this all up for you guys. 
And I know I went off on a little tangent here, but I think that illustration may help us all understand this case and who may or may not be involved in Jessica Green's homicide. Derek told that story to his cellmate about the gun being given to him by Curtis and knowing it was related to a homicide before it had even been tested and connected to Jessica. So clearly he knew that gun was used to kill Jessica Green. Is the part about Curtis hearing Jessica's boyfriend brag in jail about all the drugs he had at home, is that true? Was that really how they learned that Jessica's boyfriend, Antoine, slung dope from that house? Or was Curtis's name brought into this whole thing by Derek to cover his own ass? In the end, the question for me is, was Curtis even there? Or was it the brothers, Derek and Eric, who kicked in Jessica's door that night and shot her? Here's one thing that confuses me. If Curtis did rummage through Antoine Simmons' cell and found his address on some of his correspondence, how were he and allegedly Eric able to find that house from that address? If Sedale couldn't even find that address to tell the 911 operator the night of the shooting, Remember, he ran up and down that dirt road looking for a street sign, looking for numbers on a house. He couldn't find anything. He eventually had to run back in the house and rummage through the drawers in the kitchen to find a piece of mail. That sure makes it seem like there was no visible number on the house or a nearby mailbox. So how would Curtis and Eric know which of those houses were which? Remember, all three houses on that dirt road look almost exactly alike. Same color and layout. Then there is the matter of Jessica's back door being kicked in, five days after her boyfriend was arrested. Both Antoine and Curtis were in jail when this occurred, so Curtis clearly didn't try to kick in that door. It's also hard to imagine that Antoine had received a letter in the first five days of his incarceration. Just based off of listening to Andrelo's jail calls, and his discussion around how the mail runs in jail and in prison, it's not exactly getting overnight expressed into their cell. It takes a little while, which means there probably wouldn't be a letter with a return address at that time in Antoine's cell for Curtis to find, at least not around the time of the backdoor kicking incident. So if that's the case, we would have to believe that the first door kicking incident was completely unrelated to the second one, when the two guys kicked in Jessica's door and killed her. Sure, it's possible that Antoine did get a letter from Jessica in the first five days of his incarceration. And it's possible the two door-kicking incidents were completely unrelated. But to me, it doesn't feel probable. It seems more likely that Jessica's home had been targeted for robbery at the time of the first incident, and just as likely that it was targeted by two brothers who, days later, would target another home for the exact same reasons. Do you remember what Eric told police when he was questioned that night of the bungled burglary? Eric said that they had only gone to that house looking for weed and money because, quote, a dope dealer with a Chrysler and 24-inch rims stayed at that house. So that's another thing that's similar in both Jessica's case and in the bungled robbery case robbers targeting the homes of drug dealers when they weren't home actually seems like a reasonable plan, I suppose, if you're a low-level criminal yourself. 
That would still mean that brothers Derek and Eric had to know Antoine Simmons, know that he was a drug dealer, or have gotten that information from somewhere else. And maybe Curtis did supply that information to them. So here's what we need, because we can't connect anyone to that gun with physical evidence. Maybe someone out there knows how Eric or Derek or Curtis got the gun in question. Or maybe someone out there knows something else about Jessica's murder. Maybe they have heard something over the years. And I'd like those people to come forward. And this season I have decided to give you their full names because all three are already in the system. Two are incarcerated and one has a pending case that seems likely will get him incarcerated as well. Their records are in the public domain. So let's see if anyone recognizes Jessica's story or theirs and can help shed some light. Derek Wynn and Eric Washington are the brothers who committed the bungled burglary and ended up with the murder weapon in Jessica's case. Curtis Thomas is who Derek says gave Eric the gun and was with his brother at Jessica's shooting. If you happen to know otherwise, come and tell it. Anyone with information about this case should contact Jacksonville Sheriff's Office at 904-630-0500. Or you can email them at jsocrimetips at jacksheriff.org. You can remain anonymous and contact Crime Stoppers at 1-866-845-TIPS. And if you'd like to contact me, you can email DeckerJenny at gmail.com. That's D-E-C-K-E-R-J-E-N-I at gmail.com. Or you can private message me on the Down and Away Facebook page. Music this season, courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. You can find links to Bridget Murphy's reporting in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening. See you next season.